Today's show is brought to you by Iron Horse Racing Stable, a partnership committed to giving you value, integrity, transparency, and communication. With no markup fees and a state-of-the-art communication platform, you truly feel like an owner. Check out these current offerings at ihracing.com or email at info at ihracing.com. Iron Horse Racing, if not now, when? Live, pal. What up? Hey, uh, a really uh, fun show we got for you. Nice little uh, horse racing uh, show again coming back at you. Uh, I'm Stu. I'm Peach. And uh, today we've got uh, Mike Trombetta, the well-known trainer from Maryland coming on. He's going to give us a little update. And a little background on his story, update on some of uh, his big horses he's campaigning for the year. And then we're going to switch gears into your lane, Peach, talk a little legislation, get you going, talking a little uh, money, a little business. Uh, It's going to be good stuff. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of legislation. You, you were, you remind me of that schoolhouse rock kind of like constitution. That was your jam. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, where can people find us, Peach? Uh, you can find us at the on Twitter at Peach underscore Stewcast. That's P I E S C H underscore Stewcast, um, as well as iTunes and Spotify. Um, Thanks for all listening, Ed. You know, welcome to the Peach and Stew podcast. We really appreciate. Uh, we're seeing a lot of our numbers go up. Um, we enjoy doing this for fun, as well as you know, talking to interesting people in the in the horsing industry. And eventually, we hope to bring um, other opinions on other sports to the podcast as well. Um, but right now, we horse racing is one of the uh, only sports in town, and we uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Especially Stu, he's our uh, Horse master guru over here. At least I like to call him that. I don't think he'd call himself that, but uh not a chance in hell. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, it's uh it's been fun. Uh so we appreciate all you guys listening in. Yeah, and uh we will join you at the end of this episode with a little preview of coming attractions and uh a little taste of what you can get from us. Uh but without further ado, here's the interviews. At this time, it's my honor to introduce a man who's one of the best trainers in the country and a true horseman. We welcome Mike Trombetta to the show. Mike, how are you? Thanks for coming on. We're doing good. Good afternoon. Um, Let's jump right into it because I know you're a busy man. Uh, I I think in doing the research on you, uh, it wasn't quite apparent how you got into horse racing. How'd that come about? Uh. You know, I started I started working on the backstretch when I was very young, and my initial start into it is that um, through my dad, he had a few horses, and uh, the guy that he was partnered up with was a was a small trainer at the time, and he was kind enough to get me started by showing me around, and that initial exposure was one of those things that I just took to pretty quickly and stayed around ever since. Wait, what year did you start training? 
Well, I actually had my first winter in 1986. Oof. <laughs> that's, a, that's a few days ago. Yes, it was. It's Time has went by pretty quickly. Um, you know, up to, I mean, 06 was really your, your breakout year with Sweet Northern Saint. Do you feel like that year you really, you, you kind of thrusted yourself into the, the national uh, picture or, or do you think you, you started getting to that point a little bit earlier? Well, that was the, that was the, the biggest year that put us, put us on the map, so to speak. I mean, I, I worked a full-time construction job all the way through 2005. I was part of work, uh, working for my brother's construction company. So, you know, it wasn't until we got to 2006 that I could, you know, afford to train horses for a living and do it properly. And, and like, speaking of which, what, what was your day or what does your day as a trainer consist of? You know, nowadays... Yeah. Well, you know, we try to get to the barns early, get things started. And, you know, whatever barn um, I'm not at, if we're in two or three different locations, generally, a lot of the times I'm on the phone with the assistants, um, you know, on the way to the barn that I will be at just to kind of lay out the morning. And, you know, and nowadays it's a lot easier because we can text, you know, we can uh, I'll, I'll put together some of the training that you know, we still talk about it, but I'll put together the training that I, I want to happen. And I can basically take a picture of that on, on a piece of paper and send it to them. And we can talk about it on the morning while I'm on my way to work, you know, and then when I get to the barn I'm at, I just have the tasks that are hand that are in front of us, but it's a lot of communication. It's a lot of very early mornings because, you know, everybody's at the barn bright and early trying to get, get the day started. You know, and, and, you you've surrounded yourself with a great team. I, I had the privilege to meet uh, Tana. I believe that's her name. Yep, yep. She's my uh, longtime assistant at, at Laurel. She's awesome. She was fantastic. We were. I I got to meet her when uh, Union Annie was running. Who hopefully we'll get to at the end of this. But uh, great team. Uh, in the past decade, you've really, really turned into uh, a big name where you're not just running in Maryland, you're in Kentucky, you're, you're in Florida, New York, so on and so forth, Canada. Uh, is there a moment that you pinpoint, you look back on and say, this was the big point of my operation going much bigger and, and where I wanted to be? Well, there's no doubt in my mind, 2006 with the Derby experience with Suit Northern Saint was definitely the pivotal mark that you know, bought us the national attention that, you know, you can only hope to get. And that was a big, big start in the process. Now, you know, there's been owners that have come and gone over the years and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, you hope that your your roster consists of, of the, the best people that are going to supply you with nice enough horses that can do both good for you and them. You know, and and that's a big thing too, because I mean, just as a uh, a new new person to the industry, gradually seeing your name pop up more and more, it, it seems like you've really started to recently really hit a strong stride where you're you're becoming well known. Um, your team, how, how big of an operation do you have? Well, you know, we have. Uh... We have 50, 50 or so full-time employees, and that's what it takes to make it go round. Uh, you know, 
We're in a couple different locations, sometimes two, sometimes as many as four. Uh, a lot of work going on each and every day to, to hit all these states and, and places that we, ra- that we run. And, you know, we, we have a good group of people and we've reached far and wide to, to go where we need to go. And um, it's, it's a lot of coordination that has to go along with it. And, and every other big outfit has to do the same thing. And we're only as good as the people that are at, at home pushing the buttons and getting the work done. You know, and speaking of such a big team, you know, we're, we're in some real tough times and it's really hitting the horse industry really, really hard. Um, can you talk about how, what the impact is of no racing on your team and, and how you guys are, are, are coping through this rough time? Well, you know, we're getting by. It's, it's not an ideal situation by any means, but if you look around the world, it could be much worse. So the good news is we've been able to keep our employees. We've been able to keep most of all the horses in training. We've, we've shuffled the deck a little bit. I mean, the horses that were due a rest, this was a great opportunity to give them a little rest. Uh, the horses that aren't ready to run, uh, that have been off over the winter or whatever, this is a good time to condition them. So you kind of just have to look at your inventory and do what's right and try to make the best of the downtime. The problem is none of us really knew when this all started tomorrow looks like, and we still don't know. Um, I'm shocked that they're still running in Florida. I didn't think they were going to be able to do it, but they did. Um, You know, we can project what we think might be a time when we start, but it's nothing other than a, a wild and crazy guess. So, once we get some clarity and we know when we're going to start getting back at it and what it's going to look like, it's going to get better. Has, has the Maryland Jockey Club informed you at all that there, there may be some meetings down the road taking place where, where that can even be addressed for, for Maryland? Because that's where the, the bulk of your stable uh, is out of Fairhill and Maryland area. Yeah, right now I'm 100% in Maryland. You know, now once things get to moving again, I'll have some at Saratoga and maybe some at Mammoth, things like that. Um, but right now everybody's close knit. I got, you know, I have one barn at Laurel, one barn at Fair Hill. So, um, we're, we're just doing the job and, and getting these guys ready for whatever racing we have when we get it. You know, and that's another thing too. You, you, you've kind of branched out a little bit. Where, where does Maryland, uh, fit for you on, on the national stage? I mean, outside of Preakness Day and Maryland Millions Day, uh, what's, what's the big thing that, that horse enthusiasts or, or people that want to throw a few bucks on, on a race or something, what, what's the big draw of Maryland racing in your opinion? Well, for me personally, it's home. But outside of that is Maryland has always been a, a fan-friendly racing state. Um, it's got a long history of multiple tracks in a small state that um, goes back, you know, 100 plus years. So what also adds to the allure is we have a very good um, breeding program in the state of Maryland. Uh, the, breeders, the breeders have a chance to make money. The owners have a chance to make money. There's a lot of incentives. And, and lastly, um, where we're located geographically on if plan A doesn't work, you have plans B, C, and D all within an hour away. So it's not like we're on an island somewhere, you know, in some of these states, the the nearest track might be six hours away, eight hours away. We have six or eight tracks less than an hour away. So we, we have 
plenty of opportunity under normal circumstances to race our horses and, you know, try to produce for the owners the best we can. You know, and, and another big thing is Maryland is starting to take steps, uh, revitalizing Pimlico, re, uh, adding even more improvements to Laurel. It, should those go through, wh- where do you think is sky the limit for Maryland racing? And, and are you, since you, you and maybe Graham are, are really the big faces, uh, the big, huge success stories out of, of out of Maryland ra- racing in the past few years. Do you think you're in a well-positioned spot to take advantage of that? Other than the other than the three cold months or so during the winter time, I don't think there's anywhere else in the in the country I would rather be. Um, we are on the verge of getting new facilities. Um, you know, in a in a time where tracks are going away or downsizing and things like that. We're in a position um, with one signature from the governor that we're, you know, they're going to put 300 plus million into the facilities to um, give us a great place to race for many more years to come. You know, and a great place to see some of the big name horses that you have hopefully show up. Um, do you have a moment to, to speak on a sure. few horses? Yeah, so... In your barn, which is growing, uh, ever growing, really, you have some big names like Global Access, Win Win Win, with coming off a, a great move to the turf, uh, winning last year, I believe, at Saratoga or was Belmont. It Belmont? It was July fourth. Yep, Belmont. Uh, I was an idiot that day, uh, but you know, an Independence Hall as well. To name, to, I mean, that's just the tip of the spear there. Um, how how are they doing, and uh, do you have any plans for for where we might see those guys next and any horses you're excited well, about? Well, Global Access is enjoying some downtime. He's back at his home in Ocala. He had a great campaign last year, you know, won three graded stakes, and uh, I think he was named Florida Bred three-year-old champion. Uh, I mean, he's a seriously good horse, but he was in, in time of um, – you know, when we went into the winter, we it was time to unplug him and take him out of training for a while. So, you know, when things settle down a little bit, we'll figure out what it looks like for him coming back this summer. Um, win, win, win basically did a similar thing after the July 4th race. It was time to take him out of training for a while. And he is training absolutely lovely at this point and looking forward to getting him, you know, back to the races here real soon. And, you know, it's been, they're, they're the kind of horses that, uh, a lot of fun to have for sure. And then Independence Hall, um, didn't do as good on the Florida Derby as we were hoping, but with this year, with the three-year-old, there's nothing more complicated to do with these guys. So after the Florida Derby, um, the owner suggested just give him a month off and, and then let him recharge his batteries a little bit and get started here for, you know, a summer campaign. You know, and also with, with full transparency, I, I have a horse with you uh, in Union Annie. Um, where, where do you see her at just for for? for well, she's life. like about 50 other horses that I have. She's a horse that's ready to run and nowhere <laughs> to run her. So uh, I can't imagine how complicated it's going to get when they do um, give us the green flag can say let's go i mean it's going to be a little dicey for the first few weeks i'm sure but um we're all just trying to keep our horses to get them racing fit somewhat maintain them 
keep them healthy, keep them sound and be ready to do something when it's time. And, and she's a ex- perfect example of that. I'm just glad we were able to get one race in her for experience. I have some other horses in my inventory. We're dead ready to run. Happen. So not only were they now, then they're ready to run now and they still didn't get the first race in them. Yeah. And that's, that's gotta be tough because you have what, maybe 80, 90 horses in the stable. Yeah. About this time of year, we're, we usually get up to 85, 90 horses. Yes. Um, with Colonial opening up in Virginia last year and, and rerunning races, and and you do have success on the turf. You're not you're not one of these guys that's only dirt or only turf. You you can you can work with either. Uh, do, how, what how, what are your feelings? Does that affect you at all, or is it just another place for you to to go run where it's a little bit cheap to to shovel them in? Well, it's 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 not particularly easy to get to. Um, even from Laurel, it's three hours plus, and you know, and you got to yeah. hope you don't hit traffic, and which. Trying to get through Washington and Virginia, short of taking an airplane, you're going to hit traffic. Yeah, yeah. Time. So you know you have that. Now, what do they offer? They have good purses. They have one of the best turf courses in the country. Um, it's another place to run your grass horses. And you know, I didn't know how last year would go, but we participated pretty good in the meet. We were able to win a few races, and it. Quantico yeah, it was kid. very much worth going. You know, I, I watched Quantico Kid win while I was at Saratoga. So, you know, he wasn't a horse who was going to win at Saratoga, but, you know, he won a, you know, a race down there with a 50,000-plus purse. So um, it's a great outlet for those, uh, you know, intermediate types that can't handle the A tracks, but, you know, can certainly run for enough money on a B track. You know, and... I think with what your what your plan is and what you're trying to do with your stable, it makes sense. It goes back to what you just said, finding the right spot for the horse. Um, and that also parallels with the fact that you run a very good operation that's above board without uh, repute. Um, in these times where, where there is a spotlight on racing, uh, what are the things you do to make sure that everything it's it's equine athlete first and uh taking care of the horses you just you just hit it right on the head the horses and the people are first you know we take care of our people we take care of our horses we try to present ourselves well try to do a good job if horses are thriving and should be racing we race them if they need a break my client base has been very good they've been very understanding uh, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to work for a lot of people that put their horses first. And if if they need a rest or they need a break or they need a minor surgery, whatever they may need. Um, I found that in time, you know, a little bit of downtime here and there usually pays dividends later. And, and for you personally, um, it, you've had the favorite in the Derby. You've shown up in the Preakness. Uh, you've won grade ones. What What's the big cherry on top that you're gunning for with the sights on every single? You know the the three year old st- the three year old campaigns are really nice. The Derby and everything else, but you know that's a nearly impossible task to undertake unless you're just sitting atop it at the highest end with 
with just uh, a barrage of really good young horses. I mean, it, it, it's not something you're going to do every season. Um, there's only a select few people are able to do that. And we all know who they are. However, to win a grade one, to win graded stakes, to win any kind of stakes, and hell, just to win a races, just to go out there and represent yourself well and do right by your owners and everybody enjoy it and, and make money doing it, um, you know, that's all that you can ask for. And, and you know, to look back, you know, the, as they say, the days are long and the years fly by, and, and that's the business that we're in. Yeah, you ain't lying when you say that. Uh, you know, in the book on you, when I when I started asking around to uh, friends in the industry and prepping for this uh, little chat here, they all to a T said, you've got stories for days. Do, do you have one that pops to mind that's a fun story to, to go out on? Well, that's a tough question. I, I guess I, I, I don't <laughs> know which ones to, you know, where to start, but you know, I just, I've been very fortunate. I I've, I've worked for so many good people over the years and, you know, the, the, the guys that I looked up to as, as mentors and, and things when I was young and growing up, uh, a lot of them are, you know, the two that come to mind were Richard Small and Bud Delp. Uh, you know, when they, they, they passed, I was fortunate enough to inherit some of their clients and mainly in the Meyerhoffs and working for Harry and Tom first that had horses with Bud. And small died. I was able to get the uh, Fitzhugh horses for brother Bob Meyerhoff. And, you know, it's just, I would have never dreamed I would have the privilege to work for people that were, you know, of that stature. And, and, you know, when I was young and, and the time has went by so fast and, you know, already uh, Mr. Meyerhoff, Mr. Harry has been going now for of spectacular bid fame. I've been going for three or four years now. And, and Mr. Meyerhoff, Mr. Bob Meyerhoff is, is winding it down. He's, you know, a bit up there in age at this point. So, you know, he's he's winding it down a little bit. And, you know, it's just it, it's the, the, the seasons come and go, so to speak. And I just want to be a part of it any way I can. And some of the folks that I've, I've worked for, um, you know, they just, they've just done really good things for us. And, you know, they allowed us to, uh, the privilege of having nice horses, which in turn, you know, affords us a good life. So I'm, I'm very grateful. You know, and I'm grateful to have you on, uh, thank you so much for the time. Hopefully we can, we can run this back, uh, down the road because you are a fantastic trainer. You have a lot more fans out there than I think you realize. Uh, and, and we're rooting you on and, and can't wait to see uh, that next picture of you. You in the got it. Circle. Thank you very much. All right. Take it Thank easy. you, Mike. All right. Bye-bye. At this time, we are joined by a Kentucky state Senator. And just as importantly, a Spartan from the great Michigan state university, Damon Thayer, Damon pleasure having you on. And, uh, before you get busy at work in the legislature this morning, thanks for coming on, man. It's great to be uh, on your podcast. Thanks uh, for the invitation. I'm looking forward to to answering your questions. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, let's get right into it. You, you've been calling for um, racing to resume in uh, Kentucky, which is undoubtedly one of the the centerpieces of the entire industry as it goes in the entire world. 
why why do you feel it, it can come back and and should come back? Well, if you look around the country at the other states that continue to race without spectators, uh, Oklahoma, Florida, Arkansas, they're doing it. They've got protocols in place, CDC recommended guidelines, and they're doing it successfully. And I would argue if they can do it, we can do it here in Kentucky, and we should do it here in Kentucky. We're, we're aiming for Churchill Downs return to racing sometime soon. And, and Churchill Downs is a great company. They run the Kentucky Oaks and the Kentucky Derby every year. They, they understand logistics and operations. And I, I know that they can get back to racing sooner than later. And, and it's important for our economy here in Kentucky to send a signal. And once Churchill Downs starts racing, I think that will put a jolt of confidence into the racing and breeding economy. And it will also send, send a message for the rest of our circuit, Alice Park, Kentucky Downs, Keeneland, Turfway Park, that they will follow, that once Churchill Downs gets reopened and establishes these protocols, that the, the rest of our circuit can get going. And it, a big part of our equine economy in Kentucky is, re, is tied into the horse sales at Keeneland and Fasic Tifton as well. And people who buy those horses at sales need to see that there are going to be places where they can run their horses before they're going to buy new ones. So it, it, it all is interrelated. It's like a, 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 a chain of dominoes. And once Ch- Churchill Downs gets reopened, I think the positive domino effect will happen for racing and breeding and sales in Kentucky. And I also think it sends a signal to our surrounding states like Indiana, Illinois, West Virginia, Ohio, that Kentucky horsemen rely upon to race their horses. So uh, it'll, it'll help locally, but I think it'll help regionally. And I think it will help nationally. And I think once we get going, we can, we can have a three stage return. You, You start out with no spectators, then you gradually stage in to some spectators and then you get back to normal in the third stage. Yeah. And, and part of the, one of the big things that Kentucky came out with while Churchill did is the pushback of the Derby. Now on, on social media, there's been some consternation over this. Um, Probably the right move, but some people certainly saying, that, well, this is a time where you can shine a bright light for the country, give the country something to look forward to, a big event, um, kind of like how Australia treats the Melbourne Cup. Where did you stand on, on pushing it back to September uh, when they decided? Well, they really had no choice but to move it, right? I mean, at, at that time when that decision was made, it was uh, when – Things were really uh, looking bad for for this virus, and you know there th- there were there were thoughts of maybe trying to run it in June. I'm told, uh, you know, I, I wasn't in the in the middle of it, but they worked with the racing commission and the other tracks to do it on Labor Day weekend. And I mean, look, I mean, it's disappointing as someone who's attended. 31 consecutive Kentucky derbies. Jesus. <laughs> I've, 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 I mean, I, I, I went in 1987 when Ali Sheba won. I missed 88 with winning colors. 
And then I, I went in 89 for Sunday silence and I haven't missed one since. So, I mean, I'm sitting on a lot of tickets for me, tickets for my friends, uh, including lots of people from out of state who have never been to the Derby. And so I, I've, I've said, look, uh, we're, we're going to go and we're, we're going to go to the Derby on the first Saturday in September. And it's going to be historic. It's going to be a, a one of a kind Derby. I thought last year was one of a kind when maximum security was disqualified and country house was, was put up. I, I told my friends and my son and his friends, I'm like, look, you can, you can say you were at one of the most historic derbies ever. Well, <laughs> hold my beer <laughs> tw- tw- 2020, by the way, I should say, hold my bourbon. Uh, there you go. Tw- 2020 is going to make 2019 look like like a, a, a minor league player. So, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I had to be supportive of them moving it to Labor Day, but it was a big disappointment, there's no doubt. But clearly, there's no way they could have run it on the first Saturday in May unless they did it with no spectators. And I think, you know, their best case scenario based on the modeling at the time was to try to run it in September when, when hopefully they can run it with spectators. So recently you also decided to uh, throw some funds towards uh, lab testing and creating a safety steward position. Why, why did you, um, you know, promote that? And why, why is that important for the state of Kentucky? Well, just last week, we completed our state budget process uh, before we uh, adjourned our legislative session for the year. And the Speaker of the House, David Osborne, is also a horse industry guy like me. He uh, has a breeding and racing operation, does racehorse partnerships uh, in Oldham County, uh, just outside of Louisville. And when the Navarro and Service indictments came out, we decided to fight for $500,000 in funding for the Racing Commission to hire a state safety steward and additional investigators to crack down on the cheaters on the front end, i.e. before a race takes place. And then on the back end, after a race or races takes place, we, we transferred $1.5 million from the Equine Drug Research Council to the University of Kentucky to build a model testing lab. This is something that we've been working on for a couple of years uh, with the University of Kentucky. And right now, our samples, the urine and blood samples after every race, are sent to a lab in California. And several of us have felt that we need a testing lab here in Kentucky, the horse capital of the world. And it will be uh, at the University of Kentucky and other states will be able to contract with UK to send their testing samples here. It will be a model lab. And so you can see we're, we're working to, to, to fight against the Navarros and the services uh, on the front end with more enforcement and on the back end after a race with better testing. Look, look I, I don't believe there are many cheaters in horse racing. I think 99.9% of trainers do things on the up and up and try to win races honestly. But just those handful of cheaters can have such a negative effect on our industry. Just think of all the horses that finished behind Navarro and service horses. Think about those owners, those trainers, those jockeys, and those betters who had a stake in those horses. Just think of the domino effect of those, uh, the, the results of those races just from two trainers. So uh, we want to send a signal that here in Kentucky, we're going to take the lead on this issue. 
And uh, speaking of taking the lead on uh, an issue, what what are some things that you hope to get accomplished in the near term or, or maybe even long term as far as uh, the racing industry in Kentucky is concerned? Well, the biggest the thing would be sports betting. I was really disappointed we weren't able to get it passed in this year's legislative session. By the time we return next year, uh, probably all of our surrounding states are going to have sports betting. And in the in the border counties, we're you know we're already seeing Kentuckians in large number before the virus hit go to Indiana for sports betting. That means Kentucky dollars going to our surrounding states, you know, eating at restaurants, spending their money in uh, Kentucky or, or uh, Indiana sports books. Uh, Tennessee has it in an online app because you know they don't have any racetracks there. But even Tennessee, which is seen as a more conservative state than Kentucky. You can have an online app to, to, to do sports wagering. And I, I just have differences with some, some of my friends in my own party who think that this is a, a negative. Crack at it next year. And, you know, the part of the, the bill that was proposed this year is the brick and mortar locations for sports wagering would be Kentucky horse racing tracks, which already understand how to handle wagers, how to keep them secure, how to protect the integrity of the ballot. They've got the the, the, the parking lot capacity, the grandstand capacity. So I think that's the next big thing that could help horse racing because part of the, I, I put a, a, a little piece in the, in the bill that would, would say that all wagers made at brick and mortar locations would have like three quarters of 1% of the, the take go towards funding the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund. A very worthwhile cause, uh, a smart thing to, to throw in there. Um, is how close do you, uh, as, as a legislator, whenever, um, coming up with racing industry legislation, how closely do you end up working with the track or the jockey club, so on and so forth? It depends on the issue. You know, I've back in 2005, I passed legislation to create our breeders incentive fund. And I worked mostly with the breeders then the Kentucky thoroughbred association, for example, uh, uh, the Kentucky Thoroughbred Farm Managers Club. It, and so it, de- it depends. Uh, on, on sports betting, I've worked pretty closely with the racetracks, especially Keeneland, Kentucky Downs, the Red Mile. They were very enthusiastic supporters. Churchill Downs, by the way, not an enthusiastic supporter of sports betting, which was sort of surprising. Uh, they, did, they, they did not join the coalition of tracks. That, that was pushing for, for sports betting. Keeneland kind of took the lead on that. And so I worked over there with my good friend, Vince Gabbert. You know, it's, it, that's an interesting little tidbit. And, and hopefully, um, you know, they got their own setup doing when you're a publicly traded company, you're going to do publicly trading type things. Um, what, what's the big looking for? What's the big outside of COVID? What's the big, um, issue that you think needs to be resolved outside sports wagering just within the industry itself in the great state of Kentucky, because as Kentucky goes, the industry goes, what, what are you kind of seeing on the horizon as, as a a stumbling block? Well, there are elements in both the Democrat and Republican party that want to raise the tax rate on historical horse racing. Back in 2014, I set the tax rate in the revenue bill at 1.5% of gross, 
which is the same as the paramutual excise tax on live and simulcast wagering. So it's a level playing field. And that that is effectively a 33% tax on net once you figure that 80% of every wager made uh, goes back to pay the, the, the winning betters. And then you take 6 or 7 or 8% that go to purses and a little bit to the breeder's incentive. That doesn't leave much for an operating profit for the operators. So we've got people in both parties who see that 1.5% tax rate and they have a lack of understanding of horse racing economics, and they want to raise that tax rate to pay for things in our state budget. So the speaker and I have been fighting against that because you don't, you don't take a growth industry like horse racing and tax it more because if you tax something more. So I've had, along with the speaker, David Osborne, had to fight members of my own party as well as Democrats who get what we call the big eye when they see this great growth uh, of historical horse race wagering and they want to tax it more to get money for the state general fund while in the in the meantime for seven years in a row every year historical horse racing has grown and brought more money to the general fund based on the current tax rate so i'm i'm a low tax kind of guy one and a half percent of gross equates to 33 percent of net which is more than the tax rate that some of our neighboring indiana casinos play so that's something that people who care about horse racing and breeding in Kentucky are going to have to remain vigilant of is maintaining that one and a half percent tax rate and continuing to educate legislators to who, who don't understand the economic model that this is actually a much higher tax rate than you think it is. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time, Damon. Hopefully we can run this back in a little bit longer form down the road and, and really dive into some more issues and, and a little bit of your background, how maybe even talk a little Spartan uh, football, Spartan basketball. Well, as, uh, as most people who know me, they, they know that I was born and raised in Michigan and a graduate of Michigan state moved to Kentucky to work at Turfway park in 1992. And what I like to say is I wasn't born in Kentucky, but I came here as soon as I could. Uh, I am a university of Kentucky fan, but I I'm pretty loyal to my alma mater and really believe if the NCAA tournament hadn't been canceled, that Sparty would have made a deep run in the tournament this year under Coach Izzo. But I guess we'll never know. Well, in our heads, we know, <laughs> and that's all that matters. Hey, thank you for coming on, Damon, and uh, get back to work uh, for the great Thanks for having time. me on, Alan. Looking forward to the next time. All right, brother. You take her easy. Okay, bye-bye now. And there we have it. Some uh, fun interviews. I learned quite a bit. It was great talking with Mike Trombetta and Damon Thayer. Um, really great dudes, and we hope to have them on again down the road. But uh, coming up, we've got Gary Stevens, uh, the Hall of Famer, the current analyst on uh, Fox Sports for uh, America's Day at the Races, He's always just been somebody I wanted to talk to, and we had a great time, no? Yeah, no, um, really looking forward to that one. Uh, I think people are really going to like it. Yeah, uh, so that's dropping soon. We have Mike Maloney, the the professional horse player. He's coming up on an episode down the road. We've got uh, basketball analytics uh extraordinaire kevin pauga can't wait for that yeah that's gonna be a fun one i love that one that's he's, gonna be a lot of fun he's coming up so if you ever wanted to know how they pick teams for the tourney he's part of that 
what strength, uh, of, what strength of schedule means because literally college basketball is geared around strength of schedule. Um, and playing a hard out-of-conference schedule matters a lot. Yeah, so if you like college basketball and you like uh, listening to people who – uh, have big brains and do some really cool stuff, uh, please tune into that. And, of course, this week we've got draft. We've got NFL draft. We're going to cover a little bit of Last Dance. And we've got even more interviews set up. Uh, but, you know, remember to rate, like, subscribe, drop us a review, uh, follow us on Twitter at... Uh, Peach underscore Stucast, and also on uh, Spotify as well as uh, iTunes. Um, Wherever you get your podcasts, really. Right. Uh, real quick, though. Let's see, you mentioned The Last Dance. Uh, MJ's a killer, huh? He's He never he never wasn't. He's just, yeah, but like seeing it again, you know, because we were, we were in our, you know, we weren't even 10 years old yet when he was in his prime or towards the end of his prime. So it's like we're kind of still googly-eyed, running around, don't know what necessarily what a basketball is. Um, I got to see him play. I don't know about you. I got yeah, to no, see I didn't. I grew up in the UP. But like just seeing the... the courtside. The t- courtside tickets, homie. No way. Yeah, courtside tickets, Easter, Please Sunday. Me. me and my dad skipped out on family meal with the family and all that good stuff. And uh, he took me to the game because Michael was there. That was that when he was with the Bulls or the Wizards? Bulls. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Pistons. Pistons lost. Especially since you know MJ hated the Pistons, so he probably brought his best. Yes. Uh, it, it was a fun game. We'll we'll go into Can't that wait. a little bit. We're gonna deep dive it a little bit. And uh, thank you for uh, listening and and playing this uh, episode. We hope to bring uh, more to you. So for Peach. I am Stu, and we will catch you down the road. Later.